0: All right. Let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we're aware of your mercies this morning. Thank you for the beautiful, um, beautiful sunny day outside. Thank you for uh, our church. Thank you for the anticipation of worshiping together uh, this morning as we sing your praises, um, worship you in prayer, and under the ministry of the Word. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us uh, throughout this class this morning and over the next uh, few weeks, and also that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we uh, worship together and hear your Word preached from Nehemiah today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to things that you would want us that you would want to tell us, that we would um, respond in faith to the things that your Word says. Uh, God, I pray that through this particular class today that we would all come out with a greater love for your word, a greater amount of faith in your word, uh, and also um, a greater commitment to obey your word. Lord, those are are the real goals, even though I want to explain things. But the real goals are that we would hear and obey and worship. So help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Come in, come in. I have a couple of, I have a few more books. We will have more books next next uh, week. We've ordered some more, but we'll do one for family right now. And we have a handout as well, if you'd like it. So over the, uh, over the last year, uh, we've been working with our four core values. So these are the these are the signs out in the lobby uh, where we have uh, we have four core values. Can anybody tell me what they are? Starting on the left side out there, we start with the foundation of our doctrine, doctrine good. And there's one other foundational uh, core value, which is that we need to be spirit-filled. good, spirit-filled. And then those things work together our foundation of of doctrine and being spirit filled work together to grow us into our mission which is that we will have robust biblical relationships and fellowship would be included in that and that works toward our spiritual spiritual growth. So those are our four core values and um, as each fall as we kind of get together uh, we want to talk about one of those core values in our discipleship class. Uh, This particular uh, year we're going to we're going to kind of do a foundation of what we mean by uh, doctrine as a core value. Um, so we, we created this five week class uh, with the corresponding book uh, each week. So you can read ahead and read the read the chapter for like for the next week. I know you didn't have the chapter for this week. So you get to test me to see how well I do teaching the material by reading the chapter later. This coincided with us taking our Exploring Membership class and actually shortening it by a week and uh, compressing uh, some of the doctrinal pieces in that class uh, to be all taught like in one, in one Sunday. So being reformed, being continuationist to being complementarian. Uh, so we, we, we used to take a whole week for each of those in the, in the Exploring Membership class. We said no. We're going to make a discipleship class to, to talk about some of those things, and so now uh, that class is a bit shorter. We can talk a little bit longer about some of those things. So the plan is to offer this class, these this five week class every year, every other year, so we can kind of talk about what we mean by sound doctrine. Um, so what do we mean by a life built on uh, a foundation of doctrine? So by doctrine, that sounds like a really like a big word, like what do we mean by doctrine? Like, does your church believe in doctrine, or do they just believe the Bible? Like, that's not a that's not a great way to phrase it. So, what we mean by doctrine is just what the Bible says about something. So, if I say, "What's our doctrine of salvation?" what what I mean by that is just what does the Bible say about salvation? And uh, so, the question that we want everybody in our church to ask about really anything, is what does the Bible say about that? The Bible is our guide and foundation for everything we believe, think, and do. The Bible is for people of all generations. Um, It's the final authority for everything that we uh, believe and teach. So Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, says this, Our search for answers to theological and ethical questions now, ethical is just what's the right thing to do. Like, how do I live righteously? Our search for answers to the theological and ethical questions is not a search to find out what believers have thought throughout history in the church, but is a quest to find and understand what God himself says to us in his own words. So that's what we're looking for when we when we read the Bible to find what God himself says. So the five lessons, if you if you want to look at your book, just at the um, table of contents, the five lessons are today. How firm a foundation, the authority of scripture at Cornerstone next week, uh, Philip Sasser teaching Sundays and every day worship at Cornerstone. Uh, The next week, our sovereign God, what it means to be reformed. Daniel Baker's going to be teaching that. Uh, now concerning spiritual gifts, uh, being continuationist, uh, Phil Sasser is going to be teaching that. And then male and female being complementarian, that'll be Benjamin um, There is the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I believe we're not having this class on the kind of the holiday weekend. So we'll, we'll try to make sure you know when everything is happening. Okay, and uh, so, so last summer we took being reformed which is one of the topics and made a 5 week class out of it. We plan on doing that for the other doctrines eventually. This summer is going to be different. This summer in July and August, we're going to actually teach through parts of our confession of faith as a kind of a discipleship class on Wednesday evenings. But today we have we have one topic, what do we believe about the Bible, about the authority of scripture. So I'm asking three questions today. What is the Bible? What do we mean by the authority of scripture? And why does it matter? So those are my three questions. What is the Bible? What do we mean by the authority of Scripture? And why does it matter? I'm happy to actually send you guys or give you copies of my notes. I didn't print out. It was like 20 pages. So I didn't print them all out for you. But I'm happy to uh, post them on the website or something if that's helpful to you guys with the audio. Okay, so we're going to start with number one. What is the Bible? So any, any just like... Anybody want to be bold and just give me an answer for what the Bible is? I've I've intimidated you with 20 pages of notes now. (laughs) So what how would you answer the question, what is the Bible? The Word of God. Okay. That's a good answer. The Bible is the Word of God. What else do we mean when we say the Word of God? We might mean something other than the Bible if we say the Word of God. We might mean Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is also the Word of God. When we say the Word of God, we actually may mean what the Lord spoke specifically through a prophet, right? The Word of God could be like a specific saying in the Bible. But it's safe to say that the Bible, we we call the Bible the Word of God. So here's some questions that I kind of ask when I think about what is the Bible. Is it merely one religious book among many? In the world, so that's a question we have to wrestle with. We're not going to really answer that particular question today about how we're supposed to think of other religious books, but I mean the teaser is the Bible is unlike any other book, any other religious book. Another question: Does it merely contain the word of God, or is it the word of God? In other words, is the Bible a book that that does like have recorded some of the things that God says and other stuff, or is the Bible itself the definition of what the Word of God is? Here's another question I would ask. Is the Bible understandable as a book? Like, is it something we can understand? Is it relevant for today, or is it outdated? I mean, it was written a long time ago. Is it relevant or is it outdated? And, and, and here's kind of a key question. We'll, we'll touch on this a couple of times today, Is the Bible, um, is there anything else we need to understand who God is and his will for our our life and how to be saved? Or is the Bible enough to do that? So those are some of the questions that I think about when I think about what is the Bible. Um, But as we just think about being creatures, being created beings, being human beings, one of the most important questions that we can ask is what is truth? And some of you have memorized John 17, 17 before which says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, he doesn't say your word contains truth or your word is a lot like truth. He actually says your word is truth. So the Bible helps us to know um, not just what truth is, but how we should live. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my feet path. So it shows us how to live. So it tells us what is true, shows us how to live. And it also, um, 1 Peter 2.2, this is just a great one. It, it, the Bible tells us how we can be saved and grow spiritually. 1 Peter 2.2 says this, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like your word Your word is pure spiritual milk that we can grow up into salvation. It's talking about the Bible. Uh, In the book, Daniel, this is a quote from Daniel. I like when you write your own books, you can quote your own authors, right? So, So Daniel says this, the very word of the living God, that's his answer to what the Bible is. There is no other book on earth like it. There is no other source of truth perfect Holy and trustworthy in the way that the Bible is. It is unique among all the writings in all the world. And then he goes on to say, to think rightly and to live rightly, we have to think rightly about the Bible. How we view the Bible is one of the first principles that determines how the rest will go. If you get this right, you increase your chances of getting the rest right. And if you get this wrong, the rest crumbles. So what we think about the Bible really matters. So here I'm just going to kind of give a list of things that when I think about what the Bible is, um, these are some of the things I think about. First, the creation and writing of the Bible itself is a miracle and grace of God. What do I mean by this? So we don't often think about this particular question, but God is over creation. God is infinite. There's no limitations on God. What language does God speak? Have you ever thought about that question? And yet, God has given us His very words in language that finite, limited creatures can understand. So when you think about, we, we, we often think about the incarnation, which is when Jesus went from heaven to earth, was born as a human being, as a man, and lived as a man, and how miraculous that was. It's equally as miraculous that an infinite God that is outside time, outside history, outside creation can communicate his truth and will in a way that finite creatures can actually understand. That's what we have in the Bible. It's a miracle that God can condescend. He can come down to our level and explain to us who he is and what is true. Uh, second, the Bible is, is the Bible one book? Yes and no. Yes and no. It's all bound right here in one book. But the Bible is made up of how many different books? 66 books. Now, that's a true answer and a false answer, too, because are Ezra and Nehemiah one book or two books? <laughs> they're one book in the Hebrew Bible. So when we talk about 66 books, we're talking about the 39 books in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, which we have in English, and the 27 books in the New Testament, which we have in English and Greek. Um, but if, if you actually had the Hebrew Bible, like the minor prophets, they're just called one book, the 12 Right? That's how they are in the Hebrew Bible. But we know what we mean when we say the 66 books of the Bible. Written over how many years? About when did Moses write? We'd say Moses wrote around 1500 B.C., depending on whether you, what, what view you take of when the Exodus happened. But for me, 1500 B.C., give or take. David lived around 1000 B.C. Uh, the New Testament was written, uh, all of it written by 100 A.D., so you've got, the Bible was written over like 1,600 years, okay? Now some of the content of the Bible goes back way farther, right, than 1,500 B.C. Moses was writing about things that happened in creation. But just think of that one book that's a collection of a bunch of books, 66, that were written over 1,600 years or 2,000 years, however you want to say it. And how, what is the Bible? T- the Bible tells how many different stories, though? It tells one big story, right? So this, the Bible, though it was written over 1,600 years by a bunch of different authors in 66 different books, um, is telling one big story, God's plan of redemption for man and God's plan to glorify himself. So it's a miracle that God created the Bible, that he was able to speak in a way we can understand. It's also a miracle that God has preserved his word throughout human history. When you think about all the books that have been written and lost throughout human history, God preserved his word. Uh, Another thing I would say about the Bible is, it is complete. Nobody, we're not writing, you know, we're not writing second Caleb. Um, anymore. Like the Bible is complete. There, there's no more to add to the Bible. Um, so Revelation 22, verse 18, says this I, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So class, is that, is that saying you should add and take away or you should not add and take away? Should not. You should not add and take away. So if you take the, the the last book in the Bible and say you shouldn't add any to it, are you saying you shouldn't just add to that, that one book or you shouldn't add to the Bible? Should not add to the Bible, right? You should not say God has given more inspired, perfect revelation. Um, so the Bible is complete. Now there's a whole process for how we knew which books belonged in the Bible and which didn't. It's called the the process of the canon of Scripture, the rule of Scripture. That's not in this class. It's a a fun thing to talk about and think about. But the one thing I'll say is that it wasn't the church deciding which books went in the Bible. It was the church recognizing what the church, geographically scattered church, believed was part of the Bible. Um, But that's a fun part of Church history. Okay, I've got four words to describe the Bible, and that's what we're going to do next. Okay, four words. We're going to talk about three of them briefly, and then one of them we're going to talk about uh, more exhaustively. So uh, the first word is sufficiency. All right, the second word, clarity. Then necessity. Is that one C and two S's? And then finally, we're going to spend some time on authority. Now, in your book that I gave you, we mostly deal with authority, and that's what we're going to spend most of our time on. But I do want to use these other words. So when we talk about your doctrine of Scripture, and what do I mean by the word doctrine? The Bible. What the Bible says about something. So when we talk about the doctrine of Scripture, these are four words that are going to come up in any theological text you're going to look at about Scripture, at least the ones that I would want you to read. Um, <clears throat> so what do I mean by each of these words? Well, sufficiency, let me just read from 2 Peter 1.3, it says... His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Okay. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So how many things are left out that God has given us? None. Nothing's left out that God has given us that we need for life and godliness. And we've been given those things through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Knowledge of him, now I'm, I'm gonna take some liberty and if I preached on this passage, not in the last couple of years, but that knowledge of him we're gonna say is, is scripture, okay? So uh, we're gonna see some more passages in Peter which would help do that. So basically by sufficiency, we're saying the Bible is all that we need. It is sufficient. There's nothing left out of the Bible that we need to know God, and to know how to obey God, and to know how we ought to live our lives. So everything that we need about, we need to know about salvation, everything we need to know about who God is, everything we need to know about what is right and wrong, is in the Bible. Now, does sufficiency mean that it's easy to find all of those things? Not necessarily. Sometimes it takes work to understand the Bible. And that's why we get to, uh, that's we get to clarity. So the clarity of the Bible, uh, Grudem, uh, Wayne Grudem says this, the clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it. And he gives a qualification. All who read it seeking God's help and willing to follow it. Okay, so it's, it's not just that some professor at UNC who like wants to study the Bible, but he hates God and doesn't want to obey God. Is he going to understand the Bible clearly? He's not. But the Bible is able to be understood in all its teachings by those seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. So I'm gonna give you a couple of ways we know that the Bible is clear. So clarity just means clear, okay? Sometimes we use a more fancy word, the perspicuity of scripture, but clarity is better for us. Okay, here's Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. Now I want you to listen as I read this and tell me how does this tell us that the Bible can be understood? Okay, here it is. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So what in that verse tells us that the Bible can be understood? You can teach it to your children. children. The Bible can be understood by children. So that's one way we say the Bible can be is it it can be understood. It can be understood by children or here in Psalm 19, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the Simple. simple. So do you have to be wise to get what you need to get out of Scripture? No, actually, the Bible says that the Bible makes simple people wise. So those that don't have a lot of understanding when they, when they study the Bible gain understanding so it can be understood. Uh, in Matthew 12, Jesus is giving the Pharisees a hard time. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence and, which was not lawful for him to eat? nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he's rebuking them because they didn't understand what Jesus said was understandable in the Bible. So why didn't the Pharisees understand it? Was because of a lack of intelligence? No, it was actually a hardness of heart. So, so if you approach the Bible with a hardness of heart toward God, there are things we're going to misunderstand or not understand. But if we approach the Bible with a asking God for help and, and a willingness to obey, then God will give us understanding. Um, that sounds like humility. Huh? That sounds like humility. It is humility. It, it's humility, but it's also recognizing that we actually need God's help to understand the Bible rightly. And that this is an important point because um, a lot of smart people study the Bible. Uh, one, of my, one of my stories I heard when I was um, in seminary was uh, there's a there's a professor at Duke who teaches the book of Romans in one of his classes. And And he's studied the book of Romans forever and ever and ever, like a long time. And he teaches a whole class on it. And at the end, he'll say, I don't believe any of it. (laughs) Like he's not a believer, but he's studied the book of Romans. But he hasn't understood everything correctly, right, because he hasn't approached it with, I don't know if he's still there, Duke, I have no idea. I don't even know his name. It's just a story. It's an anecdote that I heard that happens in universities all across the country who have Bible classes, but they're not Christians, Um, but 1 Corinthians 2 tells us the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned so there's some part of understanding and applying the Bible to our lives which means we need the illumination of the Holy Spirit but all that speaks to clarity the Bible can be understood by children and by the simple okay um Now, just because scripture can be understood, does that mean that it's easy all the time? I mean, how many of you, when you get to Leviticus or for me, it's Ezekiel. Every time I get to the book of Ezekiel in my Bible reading, I just, I I basically have to say, Lord, I have no idea what some of this means. Like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this in my life today. Like my quiet time in Ezekiel is like, okay, so it's the wheel within the wheel like, what What am I supposed to get out of that? So the, there are things. So, so there are, there's a whole discipline. There's a whole area of study called hermeneutics, which is how to study the Bible rightly. Uh, and it's something that all Christians do, even if they don't know the word. Like, we're always learning part of our sermons. Like, when I'm preaching a sermon, one of my goals is to explain the text. That is one of my goals, and, that, and, and to inspire obedience to the text. But actually, one of my goals... This is a, this is a secret. One of my goals is to show you how to approach understanding the text so that you, when you read the Bible, understand the text. Not because John said this, but because, oh, but this is how when we preach, this is how we apply other passages to explain this. And we bring in what Paul says or what Peter says or what Jesus says to this one idea, and that helps us understand the Bible. So that discipline is called hermeneutics. Next word necessity. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is one we talk about less. But when we say the necessity of Scripture, what we mean is that we actually, the Bible is necessary for the knowledge of the gospel. You can't understand the gospel without the truth that has been revealed in the Bible. So it's necessary. So for understanding the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowledge of God's will. So you can't have any of those things without the Bible. Now, you can know certain things about God and about the world that He has made and that God is over the world without the Bible. Call that natural revelation, which we'll talk about in a minute. But we need special revelation. We need what God has written to us in order to know the way of salvation, in order to know God and God's will. Now That's the necessity of Scripture. Sounds like sufficiency. It does sound like sufficiency, except sufficiency is saying the other thing. Sufficiency is saying the Bible has all that we need. And necessity is saying you have to have the Bible in order to know these things. Like there are Christians out there who say, or uh, there are religious people who say, I learn more about God from being out in nature than from reading the Bible. Are there things you can learn about God in nature? Absolutely. Should we have our eyes open to see those things? Absolutely. But they actually, we need more than that to know the way of salvation. It's necessary to have the Bible. Uh, Here are some examples. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So, you can't just say, Well, I just have faith. Well, faith in what? Well, faith in in a higher power. No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. Or Matthew 4 4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or Deuteronomy 29 29, the secret things belong to the Lord but the things that are are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there are things that God knows that are secret to us, but the things that God have written down have been revealed to us and for our children that we may obey God's word. So a few words about special special revelation and um, natural revelation or general revelation. So when we talk about So revelation just means revealed, okay? So when we say God has revealed things to us, so we're talking about two different kinds of revealing, general and special. Okay. So general revelation, in that we're talking about what is revealed by God in nature. And we might even add in man's conscience. So, like visible outside, like when you, when you, when you think about creation, this is kind of, this is some of the apologetic stuff that y'all have thought about. When you think about creation, you're like, all right, if, if there's a watch, there's a watchmaker. Like this elaborate created order, which is which is so dependent on, interdependent on things working correctly, proves that there's a creator who actually made it. So through nature, we can actually discern that there is a God that created everything. You don't have to have the Bible to come to that conclusion if you look at nature honestly. Also, and C.S. Lewis does a lot of work here, like the fact that, that, that mankind has a sense of right and wrong, you can argue backwards from that that there is some absolute standard of right and wrong in our conscience that leads us to the, to the idea that there is a God that is righteous. So all that's general revelation. Philosophers, non-Christians throughout history have studied these things and, and often come to the conclusion there is a God. Okay? But... Special revelation is when God reveals his own nature and character in language to us. And this is through the Bible. Okay. So typically for general revelation, anybody know what passages you might use for this? There's two. Two primary ones. The heavens declare the glory of God. So Psalm 19. And Romans 1, actually. Yeah, I mean, there is more, but Romans 1 will, will get us there, too. Um, so that's, that's where we often talk about um, Revelation. So in Romans 1, verse 19, this is what it says. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's talking about through nature. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, And divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, meaning they they knew by what had been created that there was a God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So even though God is revealed in nature, we suppress that truth in our sinfulness and don't understand. Um, so we listed Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork as, as a passage for general revelation. But further along in Psalm 19, we get this, the law is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the sure is making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandments of the Lord are are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So you can know some things about God from nature and conscience. you But the scripture, that special revelation, God directly communicated his character and will to us. All right, a couple other passages, and then we'll talk about authority. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, those are some of my favorite passages about the Bible. Okay, number two. So we've we've answered the question in some sense, what is the Bible? Let's answer the second question. What do we mean by the authority of Scripture? Now, I handed you a confession of faith. So, why don't you take your confession of faith here? This is the Trinity Fellowship Church's confession of faith. Look at paragraph four. Speaking about authority, it says The authority of Holy Scripture, the very reason that we believe in it, does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but entirely on God the author who is truth itself. Scripture is to be received because it is the word of God. Okay, so what he's saying, or what we're saying in this confession is that we don't say the Bible's authoritative because our church says that the Bible is authoritative or because even the church through history has said the Bible is authoritative. We say the scripture has authority because we believe that God is its author. Okay? So when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. So it's not that we have to try to find God speaking in the Bible. The very words of the Bible are God speaking to us. Perhaps the most famous passage on this is 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that word, Scripture, is the Greek word graphe, okay? And that book is in the New Testament 51 times, and it always means the canonized Scripture. It always refers to that. So all Scripture is breathed out by God and uh, profitable for these things. So so when we say breathed out by God, we mean God spoke it, okay? It came from God's mouth. Uh, If you have your Bibles, look at 2 Peter again. I've, I've quoted from 2 Peter already. But 2 Peter chapter 1, let's start in verse 16. And I want you to re- read it along with me because I'm going to read through, um, through the end of the chapter. So 2 Peter 1, starting at 16. So who's writing 2 Peter? Peter? Peter. And who was Peter? He was one of the apostles. He was one of the disciples with Jesus. Okay. He was one of the disciples that actually saw some things that not all of them saw. I'm thinking of the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Jesus revealed in all of his glory, okay? So keep that picture in mind that, that Peter has seen some incredible things. He saw Jesus in his glory in a way that the other disciples did not. So this is what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, So, I think he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration there. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so you got what he's saying there, right? I was there. I heard God speak from heaven. And then look in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed Peter was on the holy mountain, saw Jesus, like glorified, and heard God the Father speak from heaven in an audible voice, and then Peter turns around and says, the Bible is more sure than that. It's just as directly from God as that. And it didn't come from someone's own idea, but men who wrote the Bible were carried along by the Holy Spirit so the whole point here is that the when the Bible speaks God speaks just as much as God spoke on that mountain and when Peter heard it okay now it's not the same experience when we read the Bible is it not every time sometimes we read the Bible and we just know this is God speaking to me right now and we like we have the sense of the weight of it and how awesome that is that God knows us and speaks to us but sometimes we pick up our Bible in the morning we're like okay I'm going to read Proverbs 6 today, right? That's what I'm going to do. But God is just as much speaking in that Proverbs 6 when I read it as he was speaking to Peter on the mountain. All right. All right. We got to move along here. Um, I just, just another um, uh, fact. Thus saith the Lord. That phrase is in the Hebrew Old Testament 417 times. So, all throughout the Old Testament, we hear this phrase, Thus says the Lord, and then speaks it. Okay, so this is, God is the author of Scripture. Deuteronomy 18:18 18, 18 says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I myself will require it of him uh, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods that same prophet shall die uh, here's Jeremiah 1, 9. The Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. Just think about it. My words in your mouth. Or Ezekiel 2, 7. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. These are the words when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Um. Here's a quote from Kevin DeYoung's book, Taking God at His Word. Uh, So he says, Scripture is powerful, decisive, and authoritative because it is is nothing less than the voice of God. Submission to the Scriptures is submission to God. Rebellion against the Scriptures is rebellion against God. The Bible can no more fail, falter, or err than God Himself can fail, falter, or err. Err, or air, depending on how you'd like to pronounce. Err, say err. So John, even yes. second, first Peter, second Peter that we just read. So like the, the common question that you might be asked is who writes the Bible? Is it God or is it man? And the answer yeah. seems like it's it's both. Like God supersedes man, and he and through the man's intellect and strength, he uses the words fit for him, but it's God who speaks it. Yes, the very interesting way it carried along with the Holy Spirit is intriguing. Yeah, one of my favorite second Peter (laughs) passages about the Bible, which I I skipped, but um, because sometimes the question comes up, well, it was fine for Paul to say all scriptures breathed out by God, because he's clearly talking about the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Now, I, I can give lots of answers to that. One would be uh, the apostles quote Jesus in the New Testament. Okay, so they're, they're often quoting from one of the Gospels, indicating they believe the Gospels were Scripture. But Peter, at the end of Peter's book, 2 Peter, he says this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So a little tongue-in-cheek here from Peter. Look, Paul's hard to understand. Uh, But you can't, you shouldn't twist what he's saying any more than you twist the other scriptures. So Peter... Claimed that Paul's writings were scripture. Um, uh, I've read that, read that. Um, so here's, here's, a, here's another thought. And there is a section in your first chapter on this. Um, the Bible has authority over all ideas. Okay, so the Bible has authority whenever it speaks and the Bible has authority over all ideas, all other ideas. So what I mean by this is you you don't have it's not like we have this, you know, this foundation of biblical authority here and then you have the foundations of science over here. And then you have the foundation of philosophy over here, and they all are on equal footing to argue with one another. That's not our view of the Bible. Our view of the Bible is that when the Bible speaks, it supersedes every other authority and explains every other philosophy. Um, so the way that Paul says this in Galatians 1 is this He says, even if we, the apostles, or An angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now i say again, if anyone is preaching to you a different gospel than the one you received, let him be accursed. He's actually saying, let him be damned in hell. So, so listen to this. So, so Paul is so confident that the message that he had given the Galatians when he was there was the word of God that he says, even if an angel comes to you and says something different, don't believe the angel. Like the Bible is a more sure foundation. Even if the apostle, like we, we read in the New Testament uh, about lots of guys who started well and then f- fell away. Okay, so Paul's saying, look, even if I fell away, even if, the, even if one of the apostles like, left the faith and gave you a different message, don't believe him because the Bible is the sure foundation. So there's another word which, um, which I didn't put up here, but we should talk about inerrancy. Okay. There's our word errr. The inerrancy of scripture. And it's one in and two R's. That's why the word er didn't look like it was there. Inerrancy. There we go. That's better. This is another word we use when we talk about the Bible. Here's a definition. The inerrancy of scripture means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. So it doesn't ever err, okay? Scripture is never wrong about anything. Um, Now, this is is an interesting one because a lot of people who sort of believe this sometimes want to debate this, whether the Bible has any errors in it. Um, So some would say that the Bible speaks truly when it speaks to matters of faith, Uh, and practice, like your religious faith. But actually, that's not how the Bible talks about itself. When the Bible talks about itself, it affirms that all things that were said earlier in biblical history were true. In fact, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, the facts in the Old Testament, uh, even the things that don't seem to be about faith and practice, he quotes them as being true. And that's true throughout Scripture. So the New Testament treats the Old Testament facts as true, um so so when we say the Bible's inerrant we mean that the Bible contains no errors that it is completely true it never affirms something which is contrary to fact uh, Another objection that people give to inerrancy is that well John you just said that inerrancy re- applies to the original manuscripts of the Bible the original autographs of the Bible when we say autographs we mean the original document that Paul or Peter or Matthew wrote, and we don't have the exact copy that they wrote, but we have exact copies of what they wrote. So one objection to inerrancy is if you place inerrancy in like these original documents that were written, can we believe that the Bible we have is true? And the answer is actually yes. There is a whole area of study, which is fascinating, uh, called textual criticism, which takes the Thousands, like over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament and compares them all together and says, like, we know this is the word of God because we've evaluated all the, all the places where they misspelled a word. We know where they misspelled it because we have all these other copies that confirm that's a misspelled word. Um, So there's a whole area of study that says we, we can have, we can know with certainty that we can, we have the word of God. Um. So the people who deny inerrancies, some of what they do is they deny like miracles in the Bible. Well, that couldn't happen. When the Bible says that somebody threw an axe in the water and it floated, like that's that's impossible, so the Bible must be telling a falsehood there. Or when it says that Peter walked on water and Jesus walked on water. Or when it says that Jesus rose from the dead, like obviously that's not true because that can't happen. Well. They've come with some preconceived ideas of what's possible, like if God is involved, it's, it's possible, right? Um, let's see what I wanna say on that. L- look, at, uh, look at your confession again and cha- paragraph number 10, and then we'll answer our third question. The final judge for the examination and judgment of all religious controversies, decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits can be no other than the Holy Scripture. Delivered by the Spirit, our faith must rest when Scripture speaks. Okay, so we talked about what the Bible is. We've talked about what the authority of the Bible means. And my, our summary of what the authority of Bible means is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Why does this matter, what we believe about the Bible? Okay, so I've kind of hinted at this, but not every church believes the same things about the Bible that we teach here, okay? There are plenty of churches around us, all around here, that don't believe the same things about the Bible that we believe. Some believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, but that it isn't the Word of God, So there there are things in the Bible that we can learn about God and what's true and about how to be saved. But there's also a lot of thoughts of man in here, which are not from God. That is not what we believe. Um, Some deny miracles in the Bible, even to the point of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Some believe the Bible is outdated, saying that some of the moral commands in the Bible don't apply today. Like homosexuality or uh, complementarianism, like the Bible's view of men and women. Like, that's obviously so outdated it can't apply today. But no, we say no, the Bible is without error and transcends uh, historical contexts. Some believe the Bible only speaks accurately in matters of salvation. Some believe only the New Testament is relevant to Christians. And we believe that all Scripture is relevant and authoritative and true for Christians. Some elevate religious experiences above scripture. Now we get accused of this at times because of our prophecy, Mike. Like charismatics typically get accused of elevating religious experience. Like, well, this is what I feel like God's telling me, um, and and people rightly say, well, what does the Bible say? That's always a right thing to say. But we believe in spiritual gifts and prophecy and tongues. But we don't believe those things supersede what the Bible says. And we don't look for, um, I had a friend in college that they're always praying to receive a word from the Lord, but they rarely ever read their Bible. Like, we don't want that, right? If you want to hear a word from the Lord, read your Bible. And can the Holy Spirit reveal things to you? Yes. But, like, God has given you the Bible with everything that you need for life and godliness. Some churches elevate the words of traditions or man or religious institutions above the words of Scripture, and here I mainly mean the Roman Catholic Church, and we say, no, let's go back to the Bible. All right, so I've got uh, two final things to say. How should what we believe about the Bible impact us as individuals, and how should it impact us as a church? First, as individuals, if we believe this is true about the Bible, all the things that we've said, then we would treasure... We would, we would really care about what God says. We'll treasure it. We'll study it. We'll memorize it. We'll meditate on it. We'll preach it. We'll share it with other people if we really believe that this is the Word of God. Second, we can have confidence. We can have confidence of the way of salvation. It's not a guess. Like, it's not like, well... I think maybe this is how I can be right with God. No, God has revealed it to us in our word, in in his word, and we can have confidence. We should experience joy and thanksgiving because God has revealed truths about himself, ourselves, and the world around us. Like, God has revealed these things to us. Uh, One of my favorite passages about studying the Bible is Acts 17, 10, and 11. So Paul's going around to his, these churches, trying to plant churches and explain the scripture to them. And so uh, they, they ended up in Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul were saying were true. So they're examining the scriptures so all that is to say we, what we believe about the Bible should impact how we look at the Bible, how we actually use it. So my final like thought for us on this this one is what other voices do we allow in our lives to compete with the Bible? And I don't mean compete necessarily like, well, I've been, you know, reading this pagan philosopher and I think his ideas are as good as the Bible. That's that's not what I mean. M- mostly I mean Sometimes we listen to other things in a sheer quantity more than the Bible and it starts affecting how we think. You know, if if I listen to like news media all day, then my view of the world starts shifting from the way God talks about the world to the way Fox News thinks about the world. Like that's that's not helpful, right? It's not that we shouldn't shouldn't engage other things, but if I believe this is God's Word and that God's Word does a better job explaining the newspaper than the newspaper does explaining the world, then I need to spend more time listening to the Word. How does our view of the Bible affect us as a church? Well, it's the basis of all of our doctrine. So basically that means if, 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 if the elders, like if somebody shows the elders, hey, the Bible says this and y'all do this other thing which is contrary to what the Bible says, and we need to change, right? It's the basis of all that we do and teach. That's why we do expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible, because we want, we want our church to hear the whole counsel of God. So where the Bible speaks clearly, we should speak clearly. Where the Bible, where the Bible doesn't speak clearly, then we need to allow a lot of freedom. Um, in our counseling ministry, our, the way we counsel is through what the Bible teaches, so, even in counseling, where we're dealing with people's individual problems, we believe the answer lies in the gospel and the word of God. So, what do we do to put this into practice? I'll just leave you with this. So, Matthew chapter 7, 24 through 27. So, remember, I, we called this class How Firm a Foundation. Um, so, we're talking about the Bible as our foundation for doctrine. And this is what Jesus says. fell and great was the fall of it and I'm refraining from singing the wise man built his house upon the rock but what is the foundation did you catch it is the foundation what you believe about the Bible in that verse it was more than that yeah so that so in order for it to be founded on the rock two things were true not just what they believed not just hearing the words, but doing them. So if you want Scripture to be your foundation, it's not just what you think about Scripture intellectually that matters. It's whether you submit and submit your life and obey what God says. You need to think about it before you obey it. So you do need the first one. Yeah, you have to hear it. You have to hear. Hear it and do it. And hear it means more than just yeah, I read it one time and I went out and, you know, you, no, it's, it's I'm understanding what God says and then I'm putting it into practice. So it's not enough to have a good theology of Scripture if you're not submissive to Scripture. All right, well, that's what I've got. But I'll, I will answer questions if you have any specific questions about things I brought up. Anything in particular? Could be simple, complex. No. Kids, anything? Thoughts about applying God's law. Okay. Today? Yeah. So what are my thoughts on applying God's law? Specifically the Old Testament. Yeah, so Old Testament. So, uh, so we typically interpret uh, the Old Testament law as being in three basic categories. Okay. If you want to be fancy, we call that the tripartite view of the law. Um, and so we would say there's, there were ceremonial laws. There were, um, <clears throat> there were um, moral laws. And there were laws having to do with the nation of Israel as a, as a nation, as a people. Okay. So there are some laws that we don't, we should not obey. Like we should not offer a bull as a sacrifice to do that would be an abomination to God. Well, how do I know we shouldn't do that? Well, the Bible tells me we shouldn't do that, that Christ fulfilled the law in that way. So there's there's a ceremonial part of the law. Uh, we would put like the cleanliness laws, not that you shouldn't clean your room, kids, but the, the cleanliness laws like, um, you know, you you shouldn't wear a mixed fabric. Like this shirt is an abomination to God because it has mixed threads in it. Like we. We don't follow that, that because that was a ceremonial law meant to separate the people of Israel from the people around them. But the moral law, which is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, and then many other laws related to those things, are about what God desires, how God desires for us to live in righteousness. So there are laws in the Old Testament which are ceremonial or civil, having to do with the nation of Israel, which don't apply to us today in the same way that God's moral law applies. And if you wonder, is this a moral law or not, I usually, the simplest answer to that is how does it relate to the Ten Commandments? That's where I start, and then we try to go from there. That's a great question. But in general, our our posture toward the Old Testament shouldn't be, I don't have to do this stuff anymore. Our posture should be, I need to obey God's word. The question is, is this part of the law fulfilled in Christ, or is it something that I'm supposed to live out as well? Excellent question. Question. All right. Thanks for being here, and appreciate it. So, if you come back next week, read chapter two on worship. And thank you for teaching. Yep. Who's teaching next week? Philip is teaching next week on worship. Thank you. John, I'm kind of surprised to would be twenty pages in an hour. Yeah. Yeah, probably a large font size or something. <laughs> I, I've been actually thinking about, you know, you, you mentioned Revelation 22. Yep. And I was actually thinking about if it's really referring to the whole Bible or it was just referring to the book of Revelation. Yeah. And I've been going back and forth in my mind of what actually John kind of meant when he penned that. Well, yeah, so the way the way I answer that question is it's so obvious that the book of Revelation is the close of like it's the close of all things, right? right. And so, um, to be like to not add to that is to not is to not add to anything because it's so obviously there's nothing left to say once you're in the new heavens and new earth, like where John ends up. So, I think most directly he means don't add to this book, the book of Revelation. Okay. And by implication or application, therefore we do not add to the canon. But that's how it answers so most specifically John meant the book of Revelation but you can extend that to say like this is clearly the last book in the Bible because of the way it ends yeah man thank you